0: I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics.
1: Coming to at our strategic farming field notes, it's brought to you by University of Minnesota Extension and also the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. And today uh, we have joining us, well for a soybean update and just discussion on crop diseases that are on the radar, including tar spot. We have Dr. Seth Nave, he is our extension soybean agronomist and Dr. Dean Melvick, he's our extension plant pathologist. So with that, I'm going to turn it right over to Seth to kind of give us a little bit of an update as to how things are looking right now and uh, you know what what you're seeing going on in soybeans and just kind of yeah, overall uh, how thing, things are going. So Seth, if you want to start out today.
2: Sure. Um, thank you, Liz. And uh, Liz and I talked a little bit before um, the, the webinar and I said, you know, I don't really have anything very specific to talk about, but I think farmers are really interested in, in uh, hearing about the crop and uh, talking about how their crop might look relative to some other areas around the state. And I've uh, traveled a fair bit. I haven't been uh, clear up into the northwest corner, uh, but I've been around the state quite a bit the last few weeks. Uh, looking around and things look fairly good um yeah, I do want to mention you know I guess you know the two big pieces here probably are you know just this continued drought um and and stress that we've been under from the beginning and then the other the other issue is, is iron deficiency chlorosis so IDC and I know that some folks in the eastern part of the state may think that this is a little bit of a niche problem and that there's a lot of Farmers whine about this in the Western part of the state, but this is, it's a really big problem for us in Minnesota, um, large portion of our acres. And it seems like this year, everything is expanded in terms of iron deficiency, chlorosis. We have more, more IDC around than I've, than I remember seeing, um, parts of fields are larger. The areas affected are look worse and we're seeing it in fields that we don't really normally see idc in. even even south central minnesota where we've got several counties in the middle of of the of the south uh, southern part of the state that don't generally have much idc they might have some pockets around some um some of these kind of old prairie potholes that show up um but there's large portions of those fields are really chlorotic this year and so met with uh, some folks from uh, one of the big seed and chemical companies this week as well as some farmers in western Minnesota and walked some fields and looked at plots. And um, you know it's it's just uh, it's just a real struggle. I, I think the things that we know work on IDC seem to have worked again this year. Um, increased populations uh, help a little bit. Uh, iron chelates certainly help um, a lot. Um, and so those are the big, the big things that really can push us along and then variety selection and, and the variety selection piece is really, is really the challenging part. And I think that's what got, has, has a lot of farmers frustrated. Uh, farmers are changing some of their, um, some of their um, background genetics as they move around um, the herbicide resistance space a little bit. And those, some of those new varieties coming out with um, some of the newer um, backgrounds of, of herbicide resistance, always seem to be more susceptible. Um, IDC seems to be one of the last things that the companies are breeding for, and kind of just backcross this in on the backside of a lot of these lines. And so, um, it, it's really unfortunate for the producers in Minnesota because we really get we really get dinged by it. And I know you know. Into North Dakota, into South Dakota, and a little bit into K- Kansas and Nebraska. Have a little bit of IDC into Iowa, but it seems it seems pretty likely that Minnesota is probably taking the brunt of of this of this issue. And we just need more we need more help from the seed companies to really help move this along and and help us out.
1: Yeah, what kind of yield impacts do you think that could have potentially? So especially if you're seeing things showing up now. I mean, is there Hope that it won't have an impact or, or what do you think?
2: Well, it's yeah, it's definitely going to have an impact. We've, we've slowed up the crop. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I am, I am sensitive to this fact that farmers are, and all of us are more attentive to things that are highly visual. You know, the old white mold thing is an, is an obvious one that farmers are really frustrated with white mold because they see it. It's obvious in the fields and they, they see it when they harvest. But yet they don't aren't as concerned about soybean cyst nematode, for instance, uh, because they don't see it. Mm-hmm. And so it's clearly SCN takes much, much, much greater yield uh, loss from from Minnesota farmers than than white mold. But white mold gets a lot uh, seems to get a lot of attention. So I am I am sensitive to the fact that this is a highly visual thing, and we probably overestimate the the losses. But um, it's not insignificant. And when we take out you know, at least portions of fields that are going to yield, you know, 10 and 20 bushel rather than 50 and 60 and 70 bushels, uh, it really, it, it, it pretty quickly, um, uh, not only caps the yield for the field, but it also, you know, puts a, puts a pretty big ding in that overall yield in those fields.
1: Yeah, true. And, and, and I'm sure, you know, if you have stunting that can impact weed control and things like that as well, too. And just a lot of other factors that can happen because you're just not getting that good a canopy out there too i suppose And
2: yeah the weed the weed thing is very interesting there's definitely a lot of interactions going on and and i that's our biggest concern is that we we do open up that canopy and then we have more trouble controlling those weeds uh, the, I think some of the challenges, uh, we, we know that there's been herbicide carryover this year because of the dry conditions. Um, so we know that there's some soybeans that have been affected visually by some herbicide carryover issues. And so some of us agronomists have been debating in this a little bit, if there's some sort of sub, um, you know, some, some factors in those, herb- that those, those carryover fields where, We've got less than um, less less damage than would give us visual uh, effect. You know that we don't have any kind of strapping or or deformed leaves or real directly stunted plants, but yet they're more chlorotic this year, and it 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 does really make me wonder if if um, if we do have some some low level effects of herbicide carryover in some of these fields is is just, um, you know, stressing the plants a little bit more and then creating more IDC in these fields. Yeah, good good,
1: good point. Oh, sorry. Yes, there's a question that came up here if you don't mind taking a question here. Uh, It's like, what are your thoughts on nitrate levels in these hot IDC areas? Uh, They agree that they're seeing less and less of IDC tolerant soybean Uh, that they're seeing less on that but we're also seeing higher nitrate levels in these areas as well
2: Um, there's no question in my mind that's nitrate thing is the is one of the biggest factors that we can really draw a direct line between idc and and um, and management or environment or 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 uh, other factors out in the field and and we know that the dry year last year and we had some um, you know we didn't we had some lower corn yields than expected because of dry conditions and then having dry conditions throughout where we didn't maybe lose as much nitrogen as we normally would. Um, but then I think I had a really nice conversation with Bruce Potter about this and he and I really believe that, that there's a, there's something really important going on with the root and soil moisture and where those soil, where that, where that root, um, where the rooting action happens in the plant. So basically what we're calling the rhizosphere, where the, the, the soil and the, and the, and the roots, um, uh, the effective area of the roots where they're, they're actively growing, where there's soil moisture. We had a very different kind of a profile this year where those roots were going relative um, to the soil profile this year because we were wet early and then the, the rain just kind of shut off right at the end of, of planting in most most areas. And so we had soybeans that were growing down through that, um, through that moisture profile into that moisture profile and growing with it, the roots growing with it in the soil. Uh, And there's, you know, Bruce brought this up that, you know, it's what we're really doing is we're concentrating everything in that, in that um, in that moisture profile as those soybeans grow down through it. And without any recharge from the top, we got a lot of little rains that, dampen the soil surface and, and gave us a little bit of growth uh, from the top, but we never really diluted out any of that, in, uh, that, that moisture profile down deep. And so any of those calcium carbonates, dissolved calcium carbonates and salts, and then nitrates, especially that were in that, in that portion of the, of the rhizosphere, I think those probably got concentrated. And in normal years, the soybean might just grow down through them. Normally we hit July 4th and the soybeans, it gets hot. We have some soil moisture, but the but the rooting tends to go down deeper in the soil. And I think we tend to grow through some of that or else we get enough June rain to kind of dilute out some of that, some of those uh, dissolved solutes in that, in that soil profile. And I think it, I think that really helps us, you know, get through IDC and this year we just don't have that. And I think we're just, we're just kind of hanging on and lingering through this longer Uh, than we've had in the past we've had we had idc show up a little bit later in some places um, that we didn't have it early we had we had idc that came on really early in some areas but it seems like it's all lingering on a little bit longer than we than we'd really like it to have it hang out
1: no interesting points and uh we do have one more question here too that just popped up it's talking about a little bit on carryover you know on dryers like last year and so far this year which types of soil would be more effective by Uh, Chemical carryover, and again, I mean that really depends on the product, right? Like, uh, there's chemical properties. High pH, low pH can make a difference, or high organic matter, or low organic matter. And I don't know if you've got any thoughts you want to share on that, Seth.
2: Um, No, and and even this this thing that I've been running in my head. I think all those things are really the the first critical pieces, Liz. But then you add on top of that where that soil moisture is in the soil profile, and so whether it's coarse textured or or finer textured soils are going to hold the moisture in different areas. Um, uh, That, that has a big, that plays a factor too. So where that, you know, if we're getting, if we do get any kind of a flush um, from any kind of a rain, or if, if things are just kind of perched up in the soil profile, that has a, plays a factor too. So it's a, it's a, it's a real challenge. Um, the other thing I would like to mention too, that's been a challenge this year and an unusual challenge is we've, I've gotten several calls from farmers um, that are, are no-tilling and uh, this year seems to be an unusual year for challenges in no-till too. And so I don't know, I don't really, I think, I think these combination of really dry conditions um, uh, early, then we had excess moisture during the sp- spring planting window and then dry again, I think it's just an unusual concurrence of events that really penalized our no-till this year. And it probably has something to do with residue breakdown and nitrogen release, carbon uh, nitrogen ratios in the upper soil profile. Um, But again, I come back to this uh, herbicide carryover thing and, and um, you know um, uh, somebody mentioned that at my meeting earlier this week that, you know, some of this could be related to just lack of, um, you know, mixing and dilution of that soil profile with no-till that we've got more more of these uh, residuals hanging out in, in a really important place in the soil profile for our our soybean development. So, I had a lot of really big challenges. I think overall, from a soybean development standpoint, this is just one of those perfect storm years where we just nothing not nothing went right, but uh, lots of things um, kind of um, went together in parallel to kind of create opportunities for real challenges for early season soybean growth. And it just, it didn't seem like it should be that tough. I mean, we, we had moisture at planting in most cases, we were able to get the soybeans planted. Some of the later ones did run into some challenges with soil moisture, but in theory, the soybeans should have got off and got going and got down to moisture and done really well this year. But it just, it's, it's that, it's that those events that we just seem really unusual where we have where the range is shut off so early this spring um late spring that uh, that really really caused us a lot more problems
1: yeah no excellent points so and a lot of things interacting together and it varies across the state like you said with timing of rain when you got the rain what are your soils like what's the water holding capacity and all that too but but uh with that i'm going to we'll hold uh, right there. I wanna turn it over a little bit to Dean here. Uh, So Dr. Dean Melvick, um, yes, you wanna give us a little update on what you're seeing with diseases, what we could expect there. I know tar spots on a lot of people's minds too. Uh, So uh, we'll kind of bring it over there. You've got, I'm sure information on sleeping diseases, but also corn as well.
0: Yeah, good morning, everyone. Yeah, I have a, a few slides that I'd like to share just to cue us into what I'm talking about more than anything else perhaps, but um, it'll hopefully bring up some questions and some other ideas. And so I really wanna talk about, um, a, a little bit about corn tar spot. I wanna hit white mold a little bit. And then given that we're you know in a drought situation in many parts of the state, I wanna talk a bit about charcoal rot and then pot and stem blight. Now, of course, in choosing these topics, there's never a clear choice always of what, what is going to happen or what is most likely to occur. But these are some diseases that, that certainly are on the top of some folks' minds. So first of all, tar spot. Uh, the First question is, where is it as, as far as we know this year? Now, just to step back a bit, all the gray shouted shaded counties on this map show where tar spot has been found in the past, previous years. The yellow counties are those that show where tar spot has been found so far this year. Now that doesn't mean it's not occurring anywhere else, of course. So these are just places where it's actually been found and confirmed and reported. Now I heard one report not confirmed, that somebody found a couple spots in a field in south central Minnesota. Now I haven't seen that or be able to confirm any aspect of it, but You know, it's certainly possible. But the other thing to remember is even these counties in Iowa, you've seen a number of them across the central part of the state. Yeah, the tar spot is at very, very low levels. I don't even think they're finding it at levels equal to what I am showing in that picture on the far right here. Most of those leaves have just a few spots. Um, But nonetheless, it it is developing in some places. And if you saw the article from Allison Robertson, their IPM News a few weeks ago, you know, they they were surprised because it's been very dry in those areas where they're finding it. But it also, it's not really expanding to anything significant yet. And again, some of these places, it's just one single spot. Like if you can see it in this picture on the left in the lower center, there's one tar spot. And on the picture on the right, there's a few more, okay. None of this is significant other than to say the disease is there. We've had conditions for a little bit of infection. We don't have conditions necessarily for enough infection to really cause problems for the crop. But nonetheless, it says we should be watching, right? The other point I wanna bring up here is diagnosis. And I've been looking in fields, haven't found it. There's a surprising number of black spots on corn leaves that are not tar spot, right? You have to rub them pretty hard sometimes to get them up. Some of them are just bug excrement If you get a little bit of a wet finger, it can rub right off. But some of it sticks amazingly hard. And so there's two things I think that are really helpful. One is tar spots are usually elongated. They're not round. They're not spherical. Or even just round on the surface. Also, they go through the entire leaf. You should be able to see it on the top. And it should be going through the bottom. Those are two clues that are really helpful. And the point I want to make here in terms of this distribution question is, if you see it, you question it. You want to know if you have it. You know, please send pictures, uh, send a sample. No charge for diagnosis. Uh, we'd like to kind of keep track of where it's developing and when. And the other thing, of course, why this disease is such a concern. We can go from levels like you see on the left, you know, relatively low, which is even more than we're seeing now, to very high levels that we see on the right, you know, in potentially three weeks under the right conditions. Now, we normally don't, don't see this in July, where we are now. This is normally something we'd see in later in August. Nonetheless, the disease can progress quickly under the right situation. And again, what is that situation? Moderate temperatures, high humidity, you know, a fair amount of leaf wetness. Ideally, monthly rainfall, that's significant. I don't think we need six inches. Um, In fact, I know places where we've had significant tar spot and there hasn't been six inches and probably not even need seven hours of leaf wetness. But there's some combination of this that we're still trying to figure out. And it seems pretty clear that, you know, moisture is a driving factor as is moderate temperatures, at least at night. It seems like we can have hot days sometimes, and the disease will still keep going if we have cool enough nights. And what about managing it? I think the key is to try to figure out where it is, when it's developing, and second, avoid the most susceptible hybrids. Now we can't change that obviously this year, but clearly in the next couple of months, we can look at hybrid variety trials potentially and see which ones are holding up better because there clearly are differences. Fungicides can be very effective. They don't eliminate the disease entirely, like like they don't on any crop. Um, but timely applications, you know, from VT right about where we are now to up to R2, R3 are all useful time <coughs> frames to think about. Excuse me. And for those few fields that are irrigated, you know, managing irrigation to minimize how long the leaves are wet. And just to give one little example, this is from some data in the northern part part of Indiana where they have a lot of tar spot. And again, this timing, in this case it showed, this doesn't show the disease, but it shows the yield uh, preservation associated with fungicide applications in a tar spot infested field. So if you look at the bottom, the two tallest bars, R2 and R3 applications, is when they had the best yields. They also had the greatest suppression of tar spot. Um, I haven't seen any significant data that would show that we have much of a benefit after R4, I mean, excuse me, after R3. So there's more and more data is coming in every year, but that's what the information is saying now. Let's uh, let's get it on between BT and, and R3 if we need it. There's more information on the disease and that will be available to you. Um, and I wanna just touch briefly oh, on- can I, can I ask you a quick yeah, question here, Dean.
1: And, and just to let our, our listeners know too, if you're listening to us on podcasts, we'll have those links uh, available on the recording uh, and we'll pull some of those up in the chat as well so you can pull that up later. But just wondering, you know, when you talk about the timing, uh, what would make you pull a trigger on a fungicide application, what level of pressure out there. Um, you know, that, again, that's, was-
0: a, that's a really good question. I know there's there's kind of two, two ways to look at this, I think. And there are folks out there doing it both ways. There are many of that have already made the decision that they're applying in mid-July, regardless of the status, partly based on pr- past year's experience and perceived risk. And some fields, some areas have a much higher risk than others. But back to your question, if we're gonna try to scout for it and then pull the trigger based on that information from scouting, that's not an easy decision. Uh, If it's in a field where I've never seen it before, then maybe it's a little easier um, because if you don't see it and you're out in Western Minnesota, you know, your risk is really low, right? If you're in Southeastern Minnesota, South and East of Rochester, a lot of those fields are much higher risk. So if we see it start developing here in mid-July and we think there's a reasonable chance of some regular rainfall, which which we're all hoping for, of course. All right. You know, Then, then we might want to lean toward it. Um, I don't think there's any magic formula right now. Um, you know, one spot is not a big deal. 20 on an earleaf, you know, that's becoming something that's really worth paying attention to and maybe reacting to. Yeah. If we have a relatively cool wet weather in the forecast.
1: Yeah, a lot of things playing a role in that decision. Thanks, thanks for that Dean, but I'll let yeah. you move. <laughs> yeah. Still figuring that out with all the research too, I suppose too.
0: That's right. There's a lot of research going. You know, remember we've only had this disease in the U.S. since 2015. So we've had limited numbers of years to really collect data, but we certainly have a lot more knowledge now than we did a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And then just very briefly, just to remind you, this is the time when white mold tends to really get going in soybeans, if it does. But where we have our drought conditions, of course, this disease will be essentially non-existent. Um, But what's surprising, of course, every year, excuse me, for some reason. It frees up on you there. It froze up. Maybe a few. Oh, there you go. So what conditions favor this? It's not that different in a sense than tar spot. Relatively cool temperatures and wet conditions. Now, ideally, we're to paint the ideal situation for white mold. We get a saturating rain, an inch or two, you know, last week or this week. Then we'd have periodic rains and dews that keep the foliage wet. For a saturating rain, Helps stimulate the fungus in the soil to grow out of the soil, produce spores, and go into the plant, keeping the canopy wet and, and enhances the infection and spread. So, what's always surprising to me is we hear about drought situations, but then we hear of certain areas where they had timely rains, you know, early to mid July, and then just periodic enough rain and they get severe outbreaks. I think many of you out there might have seen it this way. So, even though we have dry conditions, There are a few areas that have had enough rain that could be favoring this. And I think many of you also know which fields are most prone to this problem. Now, if you think about management, again, resistant varieties help. And again, hopefully we can get some information from some variety trials this year. And as far as this year though, the, the key thing is we can use fungicides. I think everyone knows that. The challenge is they really, to be most effective, need to get on at R1, R2. or I were to pick one timing, I would go to R2. Um, need to go on before we see much disease developing because the later we get it on, the more disease that's out there, um, the less we can really stop it from spreading. So again, we need to beat the disease and prevent it more than we can stop it once it's really gotten going. So that's my only point there about white mold. And uh, let see here. I want to talk a little bit about stem diseases and not, not to go into this in great detail, but you, know, you can see I, I made this little chart here of diagnostics. We have white mold, then we get to drier conditions. Charcoal rot, pod and stem blight, and stem canker can become important. Now for pod and stem blight and the stem canker, we need some rains again on the stems to help an infection, but we don't need it to continue. And oftentimes we see some very severe outbreaks of those under very dry conditions. And pod and stem blight, is recognized by these kinds of linear spots and rows on the stems. And infection can occur throughout the season. Most of it's probably done by now, If it's happened. And again, warm, wet conditions favorite, but later on the stress seems to bring it on, more so than wet conditions. And here's an example I'm gonna mention charcoal rot in a minute. I thought this field had charcoal rot because it was very dry. Some of the symptoms look similar, but it turned out to be pod and stem blight. So again, these two diseases can be confused. And charcoal rot. A number of folks have been asking about this because people know that it's associated with hot, dry, droughty conditions. And we know it's in Minnesota. It's never been a really big concern in many places, but I think we don't have a really good understanding of how widespread it is or how common it, damaging it is. Um, so this is something we'd like to know more of. Again, if you see suspected samples, you know, please send pictures, ideally send samples, and we can diagnose it and try to figure out where this is occurring. But I suspect as we continue with uh, more summers with you know drought prone areas or drought and hot weather. Um, we're gonna probably be seeing more of this in the future. And one way you can help, help diagnose this, you can actually see this with the hand lens. If you cut open the root or lower stem, you can see black specks, which is where the charcoal rot name comes from. Looks like specks of pepper. And I will stop there. And all right,
1: thank you, Dean. Any questions
0: if uh, anyone has any? Yeah, we
1: got a couple of questions here. One was talking about uh, do you have any moisture day models for these plant diseases to inform the decisions to apply?
0: You know, people have worked on that for years and trying to put together all the variables, and it's not, they're still not as predictive as we'd like. I think the spore cavity. Many of you know there's a spore caster prediction to a lot of Wisconsin for white mold. And that's useful to look at, but it also doesn't always, it doesn't take in real local conditions. Um, I guess the answer is no, we don't have any hard and fast rules because um, even though people have done a lot of extensive measurement of weather variables, matching this up to the disease development has been very difficult.
1: It depends, right? <laughs> yeah. A lot of factors. Um, and then here's another question. When does the window close for effective treatment of tar spot? So for example, what date is the appearance of tar spot not going to affect yield You know, much?
0: Yeah, I think we're still learning that one too, because it can progress so quickly. But I, I think it's somewhere past. I don't. I don't have a good date actually. But I, or I would say R. Four, R. Five. We don't see it by then in that crop growth stage. I'd say the risk of seeing really high levels are low. Okay. And Maybe in R. Three.
1: Somewhere. I know we're getting a little over time here, sorry, but we'll uh, get some other questions in here. Uh, what are your thoughts on SCN and SDS for this year, given the dry conditions?
0: Hmm. Well, SCN of course is favored by dry conditions. SDS is not favored by dry conditions, but you know, some fields we had enough water early to create the early season infection of SDS. But then, if we don't have sufficient soil moisture through July, SDS doesn't really develop very much.
1: All right, and we did have one question that we talked about earlier too. I know there's been some hail damage, and Seth, maybe you have some thoughts on this too. I know a lot of people look at you. You can hear, hey, it hailed, so let's use a fungicide. What are your? Do you have any thoughts you can share on on that and? Is this worth the investment? You know, what what are some things a person should consider before pulling that uh, that trigger on that?
2: You know, Dean is Dean is really the expert on this, uh, but I would say just don't do it. Um, don't be talked into it. Um, there's, it's almost criminal to claim that these products are providing these health advantages uh, to soybeans when when there isn't really any evidence that fungicides. You know, it's it is a little bit um, disingenuous to claim um, that these products do things widely beyond what their label is is written for, and and that's really how a lot of these things are being sold to farmers right now. There's uh, some some folks are really desperate to sell product, and they're they're pushing these things in any any cases. I I just had a farmer. In a very dry area, he wanted to spray fungicide and I talked him out of it on, on his soybeans, but he said, I really want to get the fungicide so I can get the insecticide. And I said, well, didn't you get a spider mite flare up last year because of your insecticide? He said, yeah, we lost like 15 bushels because we, we put on, um, insecticide early and it flared our, um, flared our spider mites. And I said, well, aren't you concerned about that this year? He said, well, yeah, but I just feel better if I get all this stuff sprayed on my crop. And, and so there's real deep psychology that goes into this and marketing. Um, and uh, I think farmers really need to think carefully before they put a lot of these things out um, because it's not just the cost of investment, it's not just the environmental impact, but there, there's actual real, can be real negative yield effects of some of these things too. Dean?
0: Yeah, just a couple comments. I agree with what Seth said. And also to think about, for example, corn or soybeans, the diseases that would be enhanced by, by, by hail really aren't really managed effectively by fungicides. You know, two that I think of on corn could be, say, smuts and gosses wilt, and you know, neither of those are controlled effectively by fungicides. So overall, we have not seen a lot of evidence to say it really does provide a big benefit to hail damaged crops.
2: Show me the data. I will, I will change my tune. If anybody has, if any commercial folks out there have real good data on um, where these products affect under stress conditions like this and, and can really show it to me, I'm I'm happy to happy to uh, gladly listen and maybe, maybe I could change my tune a little bit on these things, but I'm, I'm pretty, pretty negative.
1: Oh, I, ex- I feel the same way. I'm, I'm <laughs> always looking for more information. Excellent points. And I'm sorry, we had one question that came in early, but I wanted to wrap this kind of up at the end here. Uh, what can we expect going forward this with uh plant stresses here in 2023? Uh, any thoughts on that here? Um, you know, if we've got the drought, anything we can expect moving on here? or um,
2: I'll just take the, the agronomy side of it real broadly and just say, you know, we're basically living, you know, it's like living paycheck to paycheck right now on the soil moisture. So uh, it's all about soil moisture as far as I'm concerned, um, getting the crop going. I think I would say the disease piece of this is secondary in soybean um, because we just need the soil we need the moisture for the crop to develop and yield well. Um, I'm happy to take any diseases that come with excess moisture at this point because we need the rain to get the yield uh, first. so you know i'll I'll let Dean take over some of the other stresses.
0: yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. Um, you know most diseases, I think, as we all know, rain favors them. There are a few that are favored by drug conditions, and I mentioned a couple of those, but in overall when we have drier conditions we have fewer diseases that that take any yield off the top um,
1: no well thank you guys very much for some excellent information today Dean and Seth we appreciate that very much and thank you all for joining us today